stories of innovation and success from the vibrant communities of rural Nova Scotia. This is Ignited. Hey there. Welcome to Season 3 of Ignited the Podcast, where we celebrate innovation and rural success. I'm Wade Cleveland. I work for a rural innovation hub called Ignite, a place that brings startups and industry, youth and community together with the goal of making an impact on rural communities everywhere. It's great to be back for our third season, and we have some really interesting stuff planned for this year. Now, one of the subjects we're going to regularly touch upon is health innovation and what's happening within that space. And so to kick things off, we're talking with Christine Gowdy, the CEO of Granville Biomedical. She was named the 2023 Innovator of the Year by Atlantic Business Magazine. And Christine is an amazing lady. She's an inventor, an innovator, an entrepreneur, and a passionate advocate for women's health. She also happens to be a podcaster herself with a great podcast called Moonshot, which is available on Spotify and on Apple. Our conversation is frank and honest and has a ton of great advice for budding entrepreneurs. Let's start off with a big congratulations to you. You were named Innovator of the Year for 2023 from Atlantic Business Magazine, and that has to feel really good. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, it's exciting because I remember last year being at those awards, and I saw the awards go to two outstanding male CEOs. And I remember thinking to myself, wouldn't it be really amazing to see one day down the road two women receive CEO of the Year and Innovator of the Year? I always, my brain always goes there. Like, how does a woman get those things? And uh, and for this year, for my name to be called was thrilling. It was really, really exciting. Very humbling, too. Let's talk about innovation because your company is innovation personified as far as I'm concerned. How does innovation work within the entrepreneur? And what I mean is, is it something that you train yourself to be or is it you've always found you've kind of naturally looked at something in a different way? You know, I think innovation spawns from just someone having natural curiosity about something. And my whole life, I've been curious about everything, how things work, how things are made, how I can create things, how I can create art. Um, how I can make devices that would impact the human body. So I think uh, innovation is within everybody. And I always say that innovation is kind of a fancy way of saying creativity. And when people say sometimes, well, I'm not creative, I don't believe that because I think we're all born creative. We're born with a blank slate and we're born to decorate our slate and, and figure out what that looks like for, for each of our journeys. And I think that I just lean into that creative side because I also was always told I was creative and that always helps, right? That really reinforces my internal feeling of, of being creative. And I feel like we should do that for each other. Let people know that, yeah, no, you are creative. Don't say you're not creative. So I, I think that uh, I just lean into that and and that kind of then borders and kind of crosses that border into innovation because then you start creating things and implementing things into the world that didn't exist before. And, and suddenly, if you can find a market for those things, then suddenly it's called innovation. And I love that. I love that part about my my career, just creating things that never existed and, and finding people who you know, addressing a gap in the marketplace and then and then addressing um, how do we sell those to those people and get those products to those customers. So let's start with the creativity part of it, because you started off as a student at NASCAD, which is the College of Art and Design here in Nova Scotia. And so you always had that perspective, I guess, if you will. I loved my time at NASCAD. That was a really interesting time because prior to NASCAD, I went to 
um, SATE, which is Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, when I was around 20 years old. And I did website programming. And at the time, it was very different. There was no automation in website programming. So this was like pure coding. I found it very mathematical. And I knew that it was interesting, but I was more interested in how the websites looked when they were coded and how to make them aesthetically more functional for the users. And then I discovered NASCAD, which is what I always wanted to do, but I just never thought I could create a career out of creativity. So that's why I kind of took this long road to get to NASCAD. And when I went there, I realized I was kind of surrounded by other people who felt the same way. They were really leaning into their creativity in all different ways from fine art to pottery to jewelry making, textiles and design. And our design kind of squad was was kind of a unique squad within NASCAD because we were very much, um, you know, product and service design oriented, whereas a lot of the other students were fine art. But it was such a really interesting, um, I guess, environment to foster more creativity because you're just around ideas and, and people who are creating things all day long. So... But it was there that I found and I met a professor who was doing what I wanted to do. And he was designing products to impact um, human health care and, um, and the human body. And he was specialized in design for an aging population. And I thought, okay, wow, I'm starting to find my tribe or my people or my, you know, my kindred spirits. And, and it was really then that um, kind of exploded what I thought I wanted to do and really kind of amped that up. And and help me kind of go deeper and dive really deep into that area of product design for healthcare. Was there always a plan to eventually become your own boss, becoming an entrepreneur? Or was it, I don't know, more vague at that point? Uh, I, I always wanted to be my own boss. Like that was definitely uh, a necessity for me because I've always been a very free spirit. And as a creative individual, it's difficult to be told how to be creative. Um, so I find that very stifling. So I've tried working for other people in the past and I had, you know, some great experiences and some not so great experiences like all of us. But I always found it challenging to be told, be creative this way, punch in this many hours a day, create this much material by the end of the day. Because creativity and art and design doesn't work that way. It kind of comes through a flow state and you can't really direct that necessarily just because you need a designer to work faster and harder because you have a deadline to meet. So I would always meet my deadlines, but I felt like there was a better way. So when I branched out on my own in 2009, it was just more liberating for me and I could take the time I needed and the care to create the pieces that, um, that really meant something to the, to the clients and to myself. So I really became self-employed in 2009 um, and, and I never really looked back after that. I just knew like I have to do this. And this is this is where I'm meant to be. Okay. Now you, uh, around 2016, I believe, is when you started your first big company, which was uh, Biomap. What was what was Biomap about? Um, so when I was at NASCAD, I really started going deep down this rabbit hole about how to look at um, products for disabilities in a different light, and how to really involve the end users in the design cycle of how do we design for them with them as the adage goes. And I felt like a lot of companies were not doing that at the time. So I was really doing a deep dive into wheelchair seating of all things. And, uh, and I just realized that there's some big companies monopolizing that space. There's a lot of regulatory things that would have to be learned and understood as well. And I decided to kind of 
okay, well, you know what, if the seating is is so strictly uh, regu regulated, essentially, and we have some big monopolizing companies, why don't we do something more innovative that would work with their products and disrupt that industry a little bit? I felt like there was a lot of people that were afraid to touch that space back in that time, um, unless you were a doctor or unless you were a medical, you know, medically trained professional. But I feel like the medical field needs the design thinking of designers. So now we're finally starting to give ourselves permission to cross over and collaborate and work in those spaces. But I created a product uh, called Biomap and I'm actually still working on it. Um, <laughs> but that was my, my first one. I was living in Vancouver. I was a little bit lost in terms of where to go next with my career. And I started meeting a lot of entrepreneurs in Vancouver. I don't know if you know this, but in Vancouver, every second person calls themselves an entrepreneur. That is like the hub of entrepreneurship or, or wannabe entrepreneurs, I'm not sure which. But there's a lot of innovation happening in Vancouver. Uh, it's definitely a hot spot for medical device startups as well. And I met a lot of those people. I started going to these conferences and, and kind of uh, rubbing elbows with people who were creating companies and creating innovative products that didn't exist before. And I became very inspired and I thought, well, if I've already been self-employed and I feel comfortable to, to take that leap of faith, then maybe I should try to start some sort of an entity as well and do something with this biomap concept that I had already basically dreamt up in my head. And, uh, and it wasn't long before I started surrounding myself with people who could help me do that. So I started um, looking for incubators and accelerator programs and people that could really help me understand what it would mean to launch a corporation. And back then, I was still so green to that. It, it was, there was a big learning curve. And I joined a nine-month accelerator program. It was a market uh, validation program for nine months through BCIC. And I met some amazing mentors and I had some connections then through funding agencies. And I started to piece together, oh, okay, so I'm starting to see the framework of how you build a company. This is not impossible, but it is definitely challenging. And I don't know yet how to get the funding. I don't know how to to be the smooth talker. I didn't know how to pitch properly back then. I didn't know how to have the confidence to stand in front of a group of people without trembling and be able to pitch my idea. I, I used to think to myself, if being an entrepreneur means pitching, I don't know if I can do it because public speaking is so challenging. It's so difficult. And it, you know, like, my God, I used to feel like I was going to faint when I had to pitch in front of people. Now I feel like I'm just, you know, I've come 360. I love it. I, I part of my brain just really, really loves that aspect of public speaking and getting in front of people. But what a difference, you know, I guess like six, seven years can make. Um, but that anyways, that's the long winded version of of how and when I started Biomap. And I worked on that for about two and a half years relentlessly, still trying to figure it out, which just kind of proves how long it takes to to have an idea and then actually bring it to fruition takes a long time, especially when you don't have the tools and the resources yet, and you're trying to piece all that together. And that's why now I'm very adamant, like, let's give new founders and entrepreneurs the tools and resources up front so they can just worry about building the business and not worry about, like, where do I find this? And how do I find funding? And how do I um, hire and recruit and retain a team? And, and so that's why I'm kind of looking at things different now through this lens. But But when I was back there, I've walked through all these same footsteps as everybody else. And, and I understand what it looks like to be very confused 
and terrified in the beginning. Wow, that's quite a story, really is. Talk a little bit about that that public piece, because to me, that's a key part of what an entrepreneur does. They they become a salesperson to whatever idea or uh, thing that they're trying to promote and to create. How about overcoming that fear? Was that just doing it over and over again? Did, were you trained in a certain way? Were there people out there or resources out there that helped you through that? There really, you know, I'm sure there are. I know there's lots of pitch coaching and whatnot out there, but the more data that I collected and the more I really kind of dive deep into my purpose and my my path that I knew I was meant to be on, I always tell people now, when you have something to say, it's a lot easier to find the words. You will find the words when you have a passion, you have a purpose-driven mission. So don't worry about being nervous with public speaking in the early stages. It's going to come because you're going to have a lot to say soon. And you're going to want to explain that to people very soon, right? But if you don't have a passion or a purpose driving your business venture, I don't know how you're going to overcome some of those hurdles. That's why it's so critically important that you pick something that's important to you or it has it's attached to some sort of greater good because otherwise you're not going to get out of bed in the mornings when this journey gets really really hard and really punches you in the face a hundred times like you're not going to want to get up anymore and keep going back to battle but when you feel like the mission is bigger than you you will and you'll find the words and you'll find a way to even if you're nervous even if you're trembling in the first few pitches you'll still show up and and that's what I kept doing I kept showing up but I kept preparing. I kept, you know, I've rehearsed my pitches 500 times to the point where I'm sure my my family members or my partner or my even my dog could probably mouth along with my pitches. And and that's what it is. It's preparation and passion and combine those two and you're not going to lose, right? You're going to you're going to be able to show up and you're going to be able to perform. Doesn't mean you're going to get that million dollar check, but it means you're going to be able to show up and do what you got to do to at least present yourself in the best possible light. And that comes with time, for sure. Excellent. 2018 is when you started Granville Biomedical. What is the spark that put all that together? Yeah, it was uh, it was 2019. It was uh, March of 2019. I had gone on a medical outreach mission with a team that went to Bangladesh and I was there and I was and I was working on a different contract at the time. But while I was there, I was helping delegates understand how to 3D print in Bangladesh. So a low resource setting, um, but wonderful people that I met at this conference. And it was a conference all about safer labor and delivery practices. So we had a team of nurses and designers and doctors from Newfoundland. And uh, we all went over there together. And I met my co-founder on that trip, Crystal Northcott. And her and I, you know, sometimes you just meet people and the energy just matches and there's a synergy and there's a, an overlapping understanding of, of what each of you are doing and what you want to do. And there was just something about the way that her and I would interact. And we started saying, like, I can't believe women's health is so far behind. And that's how the conversation started. She's a nurse, a registered nurse that works in women's health and has for years um, and we just kind of met on so many levels, like she did her master's and I did my master's around the same time. And we had so many similar experiences in life. And then we just started going deeper about how do we change that? 
people never ever want to approach a, a subject that's so broad and huge. They just say, well, you'll never be able to boil the ocean, so to speak. And I totally understand all that. But it also takes just one person to bite off one little tiny piece, just like anything else, and add to the layers of what other people are working on as well. And then it becomes accumulative, right? So Crystal and I decided, well, let's just bite off this one little piece and tackle the lack of hands-on training in women's health because she experienced that in her profession as well. They're using things like car washing sponges to simulate female anatomy in medical schools to this day. And it wasn't just in Bangladesh. We used those in Canada. So when Crystal and I would talk about this, two of us would become very passionate and fiery about this is shameful. Like this is unacceptable. And as opposed to being someone who starts a petition and tries to collect names to make a difference, I'm sure that can work in some scenarios. Crystal and I were like, well, let's take your healthcare knowledge, Crystal. Let's take my design thinking and my 3D printing experience. Let's mash those together and let's create products that are available around the world to advance women's health in the simplest way. We're not trying to tackle the whole entire disparity scene in women's health and women's health training. We're trying to just do one thing and then let's see if we can get some people to rally around us and come with us on this journey, whether it's allies or staff or volunteers or whatever it might look like. And we found all those things, but let's just do our part. So let's create some anatomical models. Let's do them in different skin tones because that's very important for representation and cultural appropriateness. And let's see if we can actually work with some medical outreach missions that are going to different parts of the world and delivering programming, you know, to local villagers. And we connected with an outreach mission that was going to Sierra Leone at the time, and that's in West Africa. And Crystal and I made some, some African skin tone uh, models and we sent them with their team. They went there and delivered programming on the ground in Sierra Leone about women's health. Um, and tackling some pretty sensitive topics down there. And we, when we saw the photos come back from Sierra Leone and the young women learning with these teaching anatomical models that we sent down there, the impact on, on us and our psyche was, it was just unmeasurable. We just couldn't believe like these little things that we made are now in parts of Africa and young women are learning about their bodies and how to make sound decisions about their bodies because of it. And that really sparked a deeper fire in us to let's just keep going. Let's just, you know, we're, we've been taking this kind of one week at a time for four and a half years. Let's see what next week brings. Let's see what next month brings. Let's see if we can keep going till the end of the fiscal year. But what happened was we built a lot of really interesting momentum in that first 12 months. And then COVID struck and every single thing we built came crashing down because all of a sudden academic institutions are virtual um, no one is seeing doctors in person anymore. So every assumption we made, every single thing that we built in that business plan, which just goes to show your business plan is, has to be revised every six months because the world can come crashing down. And, and we decided to, to really push the virtual healthcare side. Okay, well, if these hands-on teaching models won't be used hands-on, then maybe they can be used through the Zoom appointments and things like that. So we kind of we kind of made this change in mindset to adapt to the changing times. And uh, we got thrown off our mission there for a little bit because we ended up making nasal nasopharyngeal swabs for the government of Canada for about a year, almost a year and a half. And thinking we were helping, 
and really, you know, doing our part for the country and, and for everyone in the country. But that turned out to be a little bit of a, you know, educational learning uh, experience, but also a bit of a distraction from our women's health mission. So once all that subsided for the most part in 2021, we went, what are we doing? What are we doing? Let's go back to women's health. We never, ever satisfied what we started. We never, ever saw it through. Now we have all these these people that were excited about what we were doing, just kind of dropping off. Let's get back to that before it's too late, you know? So that was kind of the, that's, that's a really long, long-winded version of how I met Crystal. But Crystal and I have been on this journey together. She still works full-time as a nurse. So she's involved in the company, not on a full-time basis, but uh, she's still very much involved in the company. This is almost four and a half years later. Now, from the time that you started with these products, obviously there was excitement and interest, but how big was that? Was was there a realization, hey, I'm really onto something. It's a pain point, it's real, and people will buy this. Yeah, you know, it was challenging because when we started the company, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to tell you a lot of very honest and vulnerable things in this podcast because I that's always what I do. Um, we got everything wrong. So I know a lot of entrepreneurs want to say like, oh, you know, they want to make it look so fancy. We nailed it and we did this and we did that. But you don't see their failures. And quite often you fail a lot before you get something right in a startup because it's all educated guesses you're making. To get things right, right out of the gate, it would be one in a 10 million, right? So when we started, we we figured, okay, we did some research. We thought the price point would be such and such. We thought the target audience would be this group of people. We thought we were going to um, sell them in these countries and, and here's how we're going to market them. We got it all wrong. So when we just could not get any headway and we just couldn't get any traction with customers and revenue, I just thought, okay, here's where I ended up. I thought to myself, we either change everything and we ditch the ego. Who cares what we originally thought? Who cares if the data told us that's what it was to begin with? Who cares if our primary research was wrong as well? It's okay. Let's change all of it. And so I told the team, we're changing the price. We're changing the product. We're changing the target audience and we're changing our marketing and we're doing it all right away. So bear with me, hang on, because this ride's going to get a little bumpy here for a bit, but stick with me because I feel like we're onto something. I feel like I'm onto something with, with changing all this. So I, we, did, we did a bit more research and we started asking people in the pelvic health community that was on our social media, people that followed us, people that were always connecting with us. What do you guys need? Forget about what we think you need. What do you guys need in women's health to advance women's health with your patients? whether it's in clinic, virtual, group sessions, doesn't matter. So we sent out a survey and said, can you please answer these 10 questions? You know, like tell us how you're going to use these products. What features would be beneficial? What is unnecessary? What are some of the bigger issues in women's health that no one talks about? What are some of the most simplistic things in women's health that no one talks about? And, uh, and we took all that data very seriously. So I said to myself, if I build something and design something and it's exactly what they're asking for, will they buy it? Because this is a true test. This is the truest market test. You're taking a per, like precise data from your customers. If you ignore that, then don't be surprised if your company fails, right? That's just logic. 
So I said, if this doesn't work, then maybe we're just in the wrong space. We'll fold it up. We'll close it up. We'll go our separate ways, whatever. So we built this and designed this product called Venus. And it's an anatomical model, essentially, that had all the features that people were asking for. So we did it exactly the way they want it. We did the skin colors they want it. We did everything else, the price point that they said that they wanted. Because everybody wants a low volume on price. When you ask someone how much would you spend on this, everybody wants to say 50 bucks, right? Like no, nothing is $50. Like nothing's ever 50. So, so I said, okay, let's just, let's just get a window from our customers. Let's not ask them an exact price. Let's just say which window of cost would you spend to buy this product? So we did that instead. And, um, and we did price it a bit low in the beginning. So, so we had a new price. All of a sudden, we have a new product. I put it on pre-sale. I said, let's just put it on pre-sale through social media and see if people buy it. They said they wanted it. Let's see if they're going to buy it. And we did that, and we sold out of pre-sale inventory in two days. In two days. And I went, oh, my God, if I had to do this from day one, we would have been so much further ahead, but we didn't. And then we, we decided, let's just continue to listen to our customers from here on out. We're not making any more nasal swabs for the government of Canada. If COVID comes back, sorry, not sorry. Like, we just can't go back to any of that stuff. Um, we're going to stay on this mission and this path now. And, and, and still to this day, we're just listening to our customers. And, and honestly, ever since that week where I launched pre-sales for that new product in 2021... There has not been a week in two over, what is it, I guess, a couple of years almost that we have not been prepping, manufacturing, packing, shipping models around the world. And the orders have come in from 16 countries now, 31 U.S. states. We've got 10 Canadian provinces and territories combined and spanning five continents around the world. So that doesn't lie. That is data that tells you your product is necessary. It's required. People need it. They want it. And in fact, that's a pretty big demographic. If we're talking about we're spanning five continents, then we're talking this is an issue. We're saying now this is an issue everywhere. And so we're, we're just going to keep building on that now and just uh, trying to partner with the right partners and do things that we can reach more people faster but uh, it's just, it's interesting. So anyways, that's, that's, yeah, we got it all wrong in the beginning, but at some point, I think it's very important that you park the ego at the door and just go, you know, something's not working and what can I do to change it? And maybe I had to change everything. And if you got to change everything, then you should, <laughs> you should change everything and just try then and see what happens. If you're an entrepreneur, you may want to consider becoming a resident at Ignite. Residency at Ignite will give you the resources, mentorship, and space you need to grow your startup or idea. You'll become a part of an incredible support network, a community that is dedicated to seeing you succeed. Book a tour of Ignite and see what we have to offer you. To book a tour and for more information, visit IgniteAtlantic.com. How do you get through getting punched in the face? You were going through a hard time and you were willing to push your way through and say, okay, this isn't working, let's change everything. That has to be sometimes not the easiest thing in the world to do. Well, you know, like the old saying goes, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Well, everyone has a business plan until you get punched in the face repeatedly. And that sounds very, you know, gruesome, but you, you know what I mean? Just, 
Um, not literally, um, but you know, you're going to, you're going to get knocked down over and over and over. And it's like, how many times do you have to get knocked down before you go, okay, maybe my business plan wasn't working. And, and as much as you might've been so excited about your business plan from day one, and who knows, maybe investors were excited about it and everyone's loving your projections and whatever, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's like anything in life, like a relationship or whether it's a job or if something is not working, there's a reason it's not working. So how open and vulnerable are you to exploring why it's not working? And and the quicker you do that, I think, you know, the greater chance of success you have. Because otherwise, this is why so many startups fail. Definitely, definitely. Aside from co-founders fighting and brawling it out, um, <laughs> that's common too. Uh, I think a lot of times it's just, you know, people being stubborn and really trying to hold fast to the fact that they created numbers and projections and an image in their mind that does not exist. And unfortunately, it was wrong. And I think about that in terms of like, think about a, a personal relationship. Like you hang on to that vision of when you meet someone, what you think it's going to be. And you don't want to break up because like, oh, I thought you were this. And I thought you, this was going to be forever. and This was going to be the perfect thing. But nothing in life works that way. When something's not working, it's just not working. And then how do we explore and how do we backpedal and change change things? So that's that was a big lesson for me. That that's something I'm not afraid to do ever again. Like I feel like I'll do that a hundred times now. I don't care. There's no more ego. My my skin is very thick because I don't care what anyone else thinks of me anymore either. I don't care if you think I'm failing. I don't care. I, I just I have no more emotion attached to what other people think. It's like I'm just going to keep doing what we need to do to get where we want to go, not based on anyone else's. Um, thoughts about where we should go or how fast we should do it. It's all about how do we organically reach the most people and do this in the best way. That's healthy for us too, right? Scaling is very difficult and very financially taxing and, and very emotionally and mentally taxing. So how do we do this with such a small team and do it our way according to our standards and what we think is going to be best for us? I love that. That's amazing to me. Let's talk a little bit about fundraising because I've, I've read some articles um, talking about your innovative approach to raising money because raising money as an entrepreneur, especially when you're doing something innovative, when you're talking about new ideas, not always the easiest thing in the world to do. So can I get some secrets or maybe they're not secrets necessarily, but how does one approach that as a, as a new entrepreneur or just as an entrepreneur generally? Yeah, well, I've got no secrets. Um, it, we weren't able to raise money. I, my God, we went through every avenue possible. We went through CDL and graduated through Creative Destruction Lab and still no investment. But at the time, to be fair, we were also distracted by nasal swabs. So we were trying to divide the company and do two things at once. And I totally understand why, as it, if I was an investor, I probably wouldn't want to put my money in that either. Because it's like, well, where's my money going? And, and how are you going to focus on one of those things? But I could not seem to uh, just paint the picture that this was going to be profitable enough to get people excited. I think people bought into the mission. I just think that the money part was still a big question mark. Well, how are you going to scale this? And how are you going to automate production? And how are you going to you know, do those things? And, and how do you know there's a, such a big market there? These are all things that are very hard to convey, especially in the beginning. So what happened was I pitched so much between 2019 and 2021 that in 2021, I went, I'm out. 
Like, I'm done pitching. I don't care anymore. Save your money. Don't give me your money. Don't care anymore. Like, just I'll find money. I've, I've been very resourceful my whole entire life. And that also, by the way, I think is a very understated, like a really great trait of entrepreneurs. If you can be resourceful, if you're a resourceful person in general, um, these things will be challenging, finding money and whatnot, but you're good at, you're already good at finding what you need to survive. And you're scrappy. That's a, a really cool word I've always heard in entrepreneurship. If you can be scrappy. So yeah, we couldn't scale to have this big fancy 25 person team. We couldn't scale manufacturing before now. We couldn't automate um, pretty much anything until now. And, and that's okay because we felt like um, it's going to come. It's going to come a bit slower. But who's measuring how fast this has to happen, right? Because if we're talking about five years ago, this didn't exist. And maybe it's going to take us five years. Maybe it's going to take us 10. But it's still at least now going to exist, well, then we'll take a bit longer. But yeah, there was no secrets. I just couldn't get private investment. And I started looking in other areas. So like accelerator programs. And we started with the Genesis Center. And they had a micro fund at the time that allowed us to access $25,000. And that was a huge chunk of money for me. I thought, wow, 25 grand. Back then, that was a lot of cash. And then we discovered Volta in Halifax and accessed a micro fund through Volta. And we started just kind of like I don't want to use the word stacking because that's a negative connotation in fundraising and funding in general, but we started accumulating a lot of pockets of money and I started applying for every single thing that came across my inbox. Oh, there's a women entrepreneurs um, funding application for marketing services and there's another one for this and another one for that. And during COVID, there was a ton of supplementary you know, funding resources from the government of Canada and provincial funding sources. The government of Newfoundland and Labrador also had some funding that we were able to access at the time. Yeah, there was quite a few. So when, when we started collecting all these pockets of money, it was able to just keep us going, but just incrementally. So for three months at a time, I found another $25,000. I, I won a pitch competition, got another $10,000. So it was just baby steps for us. And, uh, and that's all it was. And that's what it still is, essentially. But now we're deeper in revenue. So the revenue fuels the acceleration of the company. And it's really starting to ramp up. But before now, my God, I think about like a year and a half ago. And I just want to like hug my younger self because I would just lay in bed at night, like just completely, um, you know, at a loss for like, how am I going to make payroll? I'm going to have to pay my staff out of my own money. I'm going to have to do whatever it takes. And I did. And I did. There was a there was about a year there where every other month was so touch and go and dicey that I just did whatever it took to have money in the bank account to get to that next milestone. And I refused to quit. Right. I always joke and say in that that Austin Powers movie, Will Ferrell fell through the floor and they're like, are you still alive? And he's like, yeah, I'm badly burned, but I'm still alive. Like, I feel like that's what happened to us. Like, we just, you know, I, I, I was down, but I wasn't out. And I just had to rest as opposed to quit. And I learned that from someone recently at a conference. Um, she said to me, I always tell people, she said, to rest and not quit. You don't have to be in the public's eye all the time. You can just kind of go away. And, and, you know, just go behind closed doors and do what you have to do, whether it's resting or mental health counseling or whatever it is to get to the next milestone. Just don't quit. 
that's when everything's over. But resting, it's not over. Resting is just like you're just ramping up so you can get to that next, right? The next milestone in your company or product development or whatever it is. Oh, that is a lot of resilience. Congratulations, because that is not an easy lesson to learn sometimes. And I, I find that entrepreneurs, the ones who make it, learn that but it takes a lot of work. Yeah, and it would be a very different journey if someone bankrolled me into this. I always think about that. Like if someone gave me a million dollars up front and said, Christine, here you go, make it happen. I don't know if we would still be here because I would have done the things that looked fancy up front. I would have hired the big staff. I would have, you know, probably tried to automate things too quickly before the products were really fine-tuned. And I think... It's meant to be like this. And I think that the resiliency that that is created from you struggling and being scrappy, that creates the most humble and well-rounded and resilient, tenacious entrepreneurs. And after you get through that, there's not much that you can't handle at that point, right? So whether it's uh, an investor who doesn't want to invest and they're being kind of negative or whether it's someone who's a naysayer, it doesn't matter what it is anymore. It's like you've just built this thick skin and you know you can bounce back over and over. And you feel like that a little bit too with the rest of your life as well. You start feeling like, if I can take that many hits and keep on going, like, good luck. You know, I always joke and say, you have to be hard to kill. You have to train yourself to be hard to kill. Because I used to train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and my coach would, would say that too. Like, you have to train yourself to be hard to kill. And I, I mean, kill is, you know what I mean? It, course, not literally, yeah. but um, but that's what it is. It's like you have to train yourself to to let go of everything you're afraid of losing in, in a way too. And also just train yourself to be so, so resilient that you're going to bounce back every single time. Mm -hmm. One last thing I want to ask you before I let you go. And it's something that was in the uh, article that Atlantic Business did for you when you won Innovator of the Year. And it's something that really caught my eye because I think that is something truly special. They mentioned that you are innovative, but not only in your products, but in workplace culture. I was wondering about that statement and if you could speak a little bit to it, because to me, that's huge. Oh, me too. I, I wouldn't, I would not have built this company if that wasn't in the forefront of my mind, because I felt like I can be a sole proprietor and that's fine. But when I start bringing other people into this, into this entrepreneurial world that I'm building, it's so important to protect them. It's so important to give people a safe place to work and a safe space to be creative, which is so critically important. Before I started Granville, I did work in certain contracts that, that had very toxic work cultures, even borderline abusive, right? At times where there was yelling at staff and, and emotional outbursts and things that I've witnessed over the years where I... I I was just kind of like, you know, I was a young woman and trying to get my footing in, in my field and in my career and just to witness some behavioral issues that I've seen come from, from the higher ups in certain companies. It was very disturbing to me. And I just thought like, this is not a safe environment um, for anybody. And I felt like if I ever start my own company, I'm going to make sure that Yes, you know, success is on the uh, on my mind and I want to succeed in whatever I'm building or growing. But part of that, a big part of that is creating a culture in the company where people feel respected, they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel creatively validated. So when they bring ideas to the table, it's not shot down. Everything is always considered. 
and and also implemented, right? Like if someone comes to me with an idea, here's how we can do this better. Absolutely. Help let's let's do it together. So this is like a collaborative process. And the creativity that I think that fosters in your staff and the confidence too is unmatched to anywhere else I've ever been. But it's so important that I keep that going. And I found that you know, through, through really busy sprints, it's easy to forget that because you just need to get stuff done. And I still try to, to go back to, you know, it, we have a zero tolerance policy for bullying or harassment or, you know, just negative behavior. We, we won't tolerate it. And we let people know that up front. But we let people know the purpose of that is not to make you feel like you can't misstep, but it's just to encourage everyone to be open and vulnerable and communicative and creative for the greater good, right? And and no one's above anyone in the company. We're all here doing the same uh, mission and on the same path, and and you're as valuable as one another. So so that's so critical. But it really stems from me witnessing the opposite and being treated horrifically in certain contracts that I had. I've quit jobs before because I was treated so poorly, right? From sexual harassment to just harassment in general, from bullying to I've seen a lot of it. It's run the gamut in my in my career. And it's, it hasn't been every job and it hasn't been every contract, but there's definitely been a few that I've actually had to quit because of poor treatment. And uh, And I swore to myself after the last time it happened, I will never let someone happen, let this happen to someone else on my watch. Like this will not be a thing. And, and if I start my own company, I don't have to worry about someone sexually harassing me, someone harassing me, someone bullying. Like I don't have to worry about that. Right. So that's also part of like why I can't work for someone else. I can't risk someone treating me poorly because they had a bad day or they don't see my worth. I can never put myself in that position again. And, and I refuse. So so that's why till the the last breath I take on this earth, I will do everything I can to keep my own company to stay self-employed and create valuable safe spaces for other employees and people that I hire so that they don't have to be subjected to those things either. And, and if I can just do that, even for a few people, well, then I feel like mission accomplished. What's next? What's next for Granville Biomedical? Is it continuing the same product line? Are there more? And you don't have to reveal anything, but are there more products in the works? What's going on with you guys? Yeah, well, we have some really exciting things happening. We have a lot of international attention. So lately, we've been having conversations with some international companies who want to partner, um, distribute, possibly even um, something beyond that. And I'm interested to see how that's going to all transpire in the next 12 months. There's never any guarantees with any of these things, but but if it if it helps kind of align with our purpose to reach more people in a more effective way, then we will look into doing what it takes. Um, but we're also launching a new product, and it's a product that has been demanded by our customers around the world, and it doesn't exist currently, but we're going to create something to address that lack of uh that lack of, I guess, educational model. And, and you know, we're really looking at um, other aspects of women's health too that haven't quite been addressed properly in terms of patient education. And I think the fertility space is a, is a huge one that we're looking at right now. And, and I have some experience as well walking through that fertility um, journey. And I think that lived experience is so critical to create products for patients 
to feel seen and safe and and to make sound decisions for our bodies. So so I'm going to use my lived experience and hopefully be able to implement that and create something new in the coming years uh, in that space as well. And, and who knows, because things change all the time. So we always have ideas and we're, we're launching things and then the things that are further down the line, they can still change. But uh, I'm, I'm working on my PhD right now as well. And in the, so in the background, in my spare time, which is <laughs> whatever that it means, um, I'm, I'm still working on Biomap. So in my PhD, and, I, and I'm really learning a lot through that. I never thought in a million years I would do a PhD, but uh, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience so far. Very challenging, but very rewarding. And I'm learning a lot. And it all just kind of interchangeably, you know, helps everything I'm working on. So the PhD helps inform things I'm doing with Granville and vice versa. So it's really kind of a win-win at this point, but that's, uh, I like to be busy. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> I can definitely tell. Thank you so much for this. I appreciate the time. Maybe we can talk again soon. For sure. Thanks so much. You can find Granville Biomedical online at www.granvillebiomedical.ca. Christine can be followed on LinkedIn. And check out our podcast on Spotify and on Apple Podcast. To find out more about rural innovation and what Ignite does, check us out, igniteatlantic.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you subscribed to Ignited, shared us with your friends, and gave us a good review. You can check out older episodes at our archive, which can be found wherever podcasts can be found. And we'd love to hear from you. Any comments or suggestions about the podcast or who you'd like to hear on it are most welcome. Our website, again, igniteatlantic.com. My email is wade, W-A-D-E, at igniteatlantic.com. I'm Wade Cleveland. Thanks for listening. Talk soon.